0: This is one of the most familiar sections in all of the book of Ephesians, but it is a great book, a great section of Scripture, a great chapter that we're enjoying making our way through. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 21. The Apostle Paul has been using this imagery of walking, walking. And to describe the Christian life, and again, he reemphasizes it here for us in this section of scripture let 's look at this together. Ephesians chapter five verses 15 to 21. Look carefully, then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. The word of the Lord given to us here by the Apostle Paul. When a person is saved, they are moved from the realm of foolishness into the realm of wisdom. I want to say that again. When we are saved, we are moved from the realm of foolishness to the realm of wisdom. Just as his being a Christian leads him to walk, in the Greek word there, peripeteo, it means to line up under one's authority, to walk. It's the habit of our lives. Just being a Christian, here Paul tells us in Ephesians, we are to walk, according to Ephesians 4, 1, worthily. According to Ephesians 4, 2, humbly. According to Ephesians 4, 3 to 16, in unity, separated according from Ephesians 4 17 to 32 from the world's ways. And then in Ephesians 5 1 to 7, we're commanded to walk in love. In Ephesians 5, 8 to 14, to walk in light. And then in our verses before us here this morning, we are commanded to walk in wisdom. This is the walk. We are to walk in a manner worthy to what we've been called. This is in the present tense in the Greek, and therefore it means it's the habit of our lives. It's not something that we do one time and then leave it. No, this is the habit. As we once walked in darkness, as we once walked after the desires of the flesh, as we once walked even after the principality of the power of this world, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 tells us, as we once walked dead in trespasses and sins, Now we are to walk worthily, humbly, in unity, from the world's ways, in love, in light, and in wisdom. Paul says it this way in Romans 6, that we are to walk in newness of life. This is the life of the Christian. If any man is in Jesus Christ, he's a new creation. All the old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. That's what Mark's our, our belief as a community of believers. We are a new community, new people, new thoughts, new minds, new desires, new impulses, new value systems. And so therefore we are to live our lives in a way that is pleasing and honoring to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a newness of life. And so this morning I would like to point to you through this text of scripture to six things that really show how to walk wisely. We're going to be looking at the phrase in particular what it means to redeem the time, what it means to redeem the time. And the Apostle Paul here is very clear for us on what it means to walk in such a way to honor the Lord Jesus Christ and to really give Him praise and glory in what we are to do daily for Him and through Him in our walk with Him. So let's begin here this morning. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 21. The first thing He calls us to, to walk wisely in redeeming the time, is a walk, number one, in wisdom. It's a walk in wisdom. He says here in verses 15 and 16 look carefully then how you walk not as unwise but is wise there's the first couplet of comparison there's the first contrast we are not to walk uh, unwisely or foolishly but we are to walk in wisdom now what is wisdom I wanna give you a brief definition of it here wisdom is applied truth it's the shortest definition that I could find someone came up to me this last week and they said Steve we'd like to meet with you but we've only got 30 minutes so we, could we wait until we have a few hours I said why is that they said you can't even say hello in 30 minutes you have to be brief and it takes you a while because of so many words well in the brevity of words I want to give you that definition wisdom is two things applied truth two words applied truth It is the scriptures being applied to the need of the day. So if there is a certain issue that we're facing, if there's a cultural distinctive that has raised its ugly head in our lives, we are to seek and ask for wisdom, James 1 tells us, and the Lord gives liberally if we ask of him, but it's applied truth. Wisdom is not divorced from the truth of Scripture. It's applying God's truth intimately and effectively and pragmatically to anything that we are facing in our day. So Paul says, look carefully then. This is a call for circumspection. The call for the Christian is never to be carefree in our life. We are to realize that as believers, how we live matters in attitudes, and thoughts, and actions, in our private times as well. John Knox, that great Scottish pastor, used to say that what a man or a woman truly is are who they are when they're alone in the dark. That really sums up walking in wisdom. When no one's around, when we're not in church, when we're not out with friends, when we're not in places of recreation with our neighbors, when we're alone, who are we? Are we faithful there? Are we living for Jesus there? Are our hearts in complete surrender and devotion to the Lord? So this is a call for circumspection, to walk carefully, not to walk haphazardly. It's not that we have our fire insurance and we can live any way that we want to live. On the contrary, he calls us to holiness, to faithful living. He says, therefore, not as unwise, meaning those who do not know the Lord, that don't have the Holy Spirit, that don't have his truth, but walk as wise. And in verse 16, making the best use of the time because why? The days are evil. We live in that kind of evil day now. Paul lived in it back then. We live in it now. It seems like society is spiraling down at accelerated rates, and I hear this even from non-Christian friends around town. What more can happen in our world? You feel this too, don't you? You see it on the news. We see it in society. Another shooting in a movie theater. A president going to Kenya and promoting gay marriage. How dare he do such a thing? I was so proud, by the way, of the president of Kenya and 700 ministers that signed a petition representing 10 million Christians that said, Mr. President, speaking of President Obama, keep that in the United States. We don't want that here in Kenya. And when asked by a reporter, the president still, out of arrogance and pride, thwarted that belief against their own wills, trying to trump Uh, trumpet gay marriage upon that society. And the same reporter, when President Obama was done proclaiming this, asked the president of Kenya, sir, do you want to respond to that question as well? He says, most certainly I want to. And those few hundred reporters that were gathered there all chuckled because he knew that that man would not cower in the face of that kind of depravity. Aren't you glad that someone finally stood up and said no more on this? Now listen, We love gay people. We want them to come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But scripture is clear that it's listed among many sins. Homosexuality is not in praise and honor of our Lord. And certainly gay marriage doesn't represent the biblical call to marriage of one man, one woman in a godly relationship. So here he says we are to redeem the time. We just can't assert anything and try to give him praise for our own depravity. We are to live as wise people. We're to redeem the time, make the best use of the time because the days are evil. That word "redeem" here it means to buy back from the marketplace. And what the apostle is saying here is is buy up the days, buy up the time. Don't take it for granted. We're going to see here in a few passages this morning. If you'll turn with me to James chapter 4 and verse 14 this morning, James gives us a perfect glimpse of time and especially on the use of time. He really sums up the fleeting life that we all have. Notice here in James chapter 4, he says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist. Some translations make it a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Notice in verse 13 to give context. Come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there in a trade and make a profit. We don't know what our lives hold. And beloved, even if we were to live 80 plus years, a good, full, long life, as my mom Ruth, who recently went home to be with the Lord, 96 years, 83 of them spent living faithfully to the Lord. How grateful I am for her and how much I miss her. But even then, James says, your life is a mist. It's a vapor, it's a puff of smoke. It comes and goes so quickly. So we need to honor the Lord with a life of wisdom in a life that is done in honor to Him because only what's done for Christ will truly last. Go back to, with me one chapter in James and go to James chapter 3 and verse 13. James chapter 3 and verse 13. We're to live according to wisdom and it's not the wisdom of men it's the wisdom of our god as found in his word and james echoes this here he says in verse 13 but the wisdom from above is first pure then peaceable gentle open to reason full of mercy and good fruit impartial and sincere listen if you want a great definition of definition of wisdom there it is look at those adjectives pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, merciful, good, impartial, sincere. That's what godly wisdom does. And notice he says in verse 14, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so here, because we have a wisdom from above, we're not left making our way through this earth, staggering to and fro, not sure where we are to go. We have been given godly wisdom in how we live our lives. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and in verse 17, Peter gives us an amazing word of exhortation here on how we are to conduct ourselves. As you know here, I'll begin reading in, in verse In verse, uh, let's say, 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ when he comes, in other words. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That's a great way to describe our lives before Jesus, isn't it? A former ignorance but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And then he says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. As you know, 1 Peter was written to suffering Christians who were being dispersed throughout all of these cities of Asia Minor, and he calls them chosen exiles, elect exiles, that though the world had driven them away from the comforts of home and job and money and pride and, and, and all kinds of accoutrements that we've grown accustomed to in this world, that here he says, you're not forgotten by God. You're chosen, you're foreknown, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And he's giving them encouragement here. In the time of your exile, you know how to conduct yourself. God the Father judges impartially, and he's going to reward each of us according to our deeds. So here's a a further call. In our exile, this world is not our home. We're just a passing through. We're only visiting this planet, as my old friend Larry Norman would have said that here we're making our way through this earth, but yet we know how we are to live and we are to conduct ourselves in wisdom, in holiness, by according to how God has established this in his word. And then lastly, go with me to Colossians chapter 1. Do you know that wisdom is not only something that is in his word, it's something that we are to pray for each other daily to have in our lives. If you want to know how to pray for other Christians, Colossians chapter 1 verse 9 gives us a great way to pray. Paul says, now he's writing from a Roman prison, a Roman cell. He's about a thousand miles away. He's never met these dear people, but their faithful pastor Epaphras has gone and traveled by all kinds of means. It took him many, many weeks to get to see Paul, but he wanted to share about the burden and the needs of his own congregation. And Paul says in verse 9, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. There's the heart of a real Christian. Asking that you may be filled, notice this, with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. There's a great prayer. That's how we can pray for each other as Christians. When you're wanting to know, you might haven't seen a member of the church for a while. They may be on vacation. They may be in the hospital. You might know, even though you don't know what's going on in their lives personally, you know how to pray for one another. Pray, and I could use your prayers in this as well, with the knowledge that we would be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Even verse 10 he says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That's how we can pray for each other. That's what we need to encourage each other to do as Christians. Please the Lord. Live faithfully. If you're having rough moments, if sin is crouching at your door, if you're struggling in an area you weren't meant to face that trial alone or that sin issue alone we are as brothers and sisters in Christ to bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ It's part of our new life in Jesus so Paul begins by telling us here if we're gonna walk wisely if we're gonna buy back the hours if we're not gonna squander our time if we want to use as the barometer of holiness in our life see how we're spending our days we want to redeem the time we want to purchase those lost hours back that we spent in in rivalry and in sin and so forth before we came to know Jesus now he says redeem the time make most of every opportunity so the first thing to redeem the time we want to walk in wisdom secondly this morning verse 17 in Ephesians chapter 5 he says not only are we to walk in wisdom but we are to walk with understanding oh, this is so good here we see another comparison therefore do not be foolish do not be foolish don't spend that time in living as if there is no God you know what the psalmist says in Psalm 14 the fool says in his heart there is no God the fool is one who is cast aside all moral and spiritual honor to God in order to live a life that they want to live according to their own mandates and dictates he says therefore do not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is just as we see unwise and wise being compared we also see here that we want to live not foolishly but we want to understand what the will of the Lord is. This is how we are to spend our lives. We're to walk with understanding. Now that word here, to understand, it is a rich word. And it simply means not just a mental assent, but it means to bring together, to consider something, to join together in mind. It's an idiom used for what is good and what is upright, what is morally true, and it's also used in Scripture of the things that pertain to salvation. So Paul is saying, if you're going to live with understanding, you do not want to be foolish, but you want to think and mind your faith. You want to understand what the will of the Lord is for your life. A very familiar passage this morning, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul calls us there after 11 great chapters of theology to live it out. And you know Romans 12.1 very well. We are to present our bodies as living what? Sacrifices. Holy, acceptable, pleasing unto God. He says this is your just and spiritual worship. But verse 2 is just as important. He says, Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world. The Philip translation of of modern English says it this way, don't let the world squeeze you into its own mold. I love that imagery. Don't let the world squeeze you into its own mold. Same thing here. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. You notice here he's not calling for behavior modification. He's calling for life transformation. Be transformed by what? The renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. There's that phrase. What is good and acceptable and perfect. This is what Paul is trying to communicate to us in Ephesians. This is what he's trying to say to us there. But you know, the Old Testament writers as well speak about wisdom. Speak about understanding. Speak about the things that actually please the Lord. In Proverbs... Chapter 23 and in verse 23. Easy to remember. Proverbs 23 23. Solomon says this buy truth and don't sell it. We have it. We have it in the scriptures. We have it in the Word of God. He's placing a premium on God's Word. It's not something that is to be looked at carelessly. We're to purchase it, we're to buy wisdom, instruction. And understanding. Notice that if your life is based on truth, you can apply that truth, wisdom. It will teach you, it will give you instruction, and it will help fix your minds and garner you understanding. It's a wonderful term used in education. Comprehension, in other words. A term used that will give you the full orb of thinking, of Christian thinking, on what pleases the Lord, on what honors Him, on what brings joy to Him. Jeremiah echoes this in Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, chapter 4 and in verse 22. Jeremiah was given an interesting ministry. He was told by the Lord, I'm calling you to proclaim my truth, and by the way, no one is ever going to listen to you. (laughs) How many of us would want that kind of ministry? I've called you into the ministry. You're to go as Ezekiel. You're to go as Isaiah, and no one will ever listen to you. In fact, they're going to disdain you. They're going to throw you in a pit. They're going to have at it with you. Jeremiah wasn't one of the boys that you'd invite to go bowling on Saturday night before worship on Sunday. This was a prophetic man, a weeping prophet. And his heart and mind was galvanized, not by public acceptance, but by private devotion and worthiness before the Lord. Notice what Jeremiah is given as a strong word for the people of Israel. He says, for my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil. But how to do good, they know not. What an indictment. What an indictment on God's covenant people. But Jeremiah is to speak that truth, taking no thought, his own popularity or fame. He is to preach that truth. My people, notice here, foolish, stupid, have no understanding. They're wise in doing evil. They have a wisdom about evil. And they don't know how to do good. Paul says just the opposite for us. We're new creations in him. We are to honor him. We are to do good. We are to please the Lord in all respects. As we go back to 1 Peter this morning, in 1 Peter chapter 4 and in verse 2, Peter is echoing this. We can even read verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Notice the emphasis on thoughts. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. It doesn't mean you become sinless, but if you're going through personal suffering for the cause of Christ, your heart and mind, especially being persecuted, is not on the normal everyday things of life. You're just happy to be suffering for the kingdom of God. And he says in 1 Peter 4.2, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passion, but for what? The will of God. There it is. What is God's will? It's for the time in past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. You see, new people. New people means a new life, means new friendships, new places where we go to spend our days. Very practical, this portion of Scripture We don't want Jeremiah's strong indictment in us. We want to live whatever time in the flesh we live. We want to live for his glory, live for his purpose. In other words, brothers and sisters, godliness is a doctrine. Godliness matters. This is not on the slide above me this morning, but will you turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and in verse 3. This is a very important scripture. The young caged Calvinist, the the movement of uber-grace that believes they don't have to live. They look at obedience as a work rather than the fruit of holiness, the fruit of real regeneration. They think they have their fire insurance, they can live anywhere they want to, they want to do. They don't have to live in a godly way. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 3, he says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine... And does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice this. And the teaching that accords with godliness. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Godliness is a doctrine. Being holy before the Lord is more than just being seated positionally in the heavenlies with Christ. It is something by grace that we do every day in honoring Him by perfecting holiness and the fear of God throughout our life. Obedience matters. Doctrine matters. The gospel matters. But to say that we are saved and not have a change in our behavior is really to make cheap the grace with which we are saved. This is costly grace. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the sound words of of the Lord in his gospel. And it accords with godliness. It accords with godliness. We are to love him. We are to live with our minds fixed on the things above. We are to comprehend what is godly and true. And then we are to see that comprehended in the daily life lived. Number three, to walk wisely and redeem the time. We walk in wisdom with understanding. But thirdly, this morning in verse 18, we are to be filled with the Spirit. We are to be filled with the Spirit. This verse, even though it's simple, has been the cause for more misinformation than many verses have in Scripture. Notice in verse 18, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. But be filled with the Spirit. Spirit Spirit-filled Christians are people whose lives are characterized by a newness of life. By a newness of life. Now, in this passage of Scripture here, we know that drunkenness should not accompany those that honor the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be free from the love of that kind of thirst for alcohol that puts us in a state of losing control and inebriation. But in this context, the Apostle Paul isn't simply saying, control your drinking. It has a deeper meaning. Paul's prohibition here is against really the pagan mystery cult celebrations that were going on in Ephesus at the temple Diana. It was known Dionysius, the cult of Dionysius literally Dionysius was known as the God of wine and they could come in to this temple and worship this God of of wine, this God of Dionysius And it was those that previously participated in it, these Christians who used to go there, now worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul's saying here that a major feature of that kind of worship, it literally was holding orgies that included heavy intoxication with alcohol, with wine. The purpose was to cause Dionysius to enter and fill the worshiper's body so that he or she would comply with that particular deity's will. So interpreting the prohibition here against drunkenness, against that is the backdrop of this obviously attractive cult worship where they would engage themselves in all matters of sensualities and drunkenness. Paul's contrasting that here. He's saying, don't give yourself to that. Don't let your inebriated state worship false gods that you came out of. What's the contrast? We've seen unwise in wisdom. We've seen foolishness and knowing God's will. God's will, that which is good and right and true that he desires for everyone. But here in this contrast... It's the contrast between drunkenness that leads to idolatry versus holiness that is accomplished by being filled with the Spirit. It's to be substituted for getting drunk, being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now what does this mean? To be filled with the Holy Spirit is not taking a cup and say filling it with a liquid, filling it with water. It's not being filled to compared to being empty. That's not what filling means here in this context. To be filled with the Spirit, it's a nautical term. And it means to be carried along. It was used of wind in how it would fill the sails of a ship. And as the sails of a ship would be filled with wind and then carried along, the Apostle Paul is saying, be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's present tense. It's awkward to say, but it's be being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a command. It's a, it's a command to constantly have the sails of your life filled with the Holy Spirit so that you are directed and carried along to live a life that pleases the Lord. You might have heard the phrase, as I did growing up, the Spirit-controlled life. This is what the apostle means. As alcohol would control someone to a life of debauchery, to a life of false worship, to a life of going into the temple and giving praise and adoration to this idol Dionysius, the god of wine, as wine would disarm them to leave them in an uncontrolled state, he says that's not how a Christian should be. We are to be being filled with the Spirit, carried along, living the spirit control life in the soberness of our minds so that we can honor God with a holy life. Great truth. Be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Present tense Christianity. Be being filled with the Spirit. Now let's look at this for a moment. Would you go with me to Proverbs chapter 23? This is a profound section of Scripture. Proverbs chapter 23, it mentions in a few verses what the excess of alcohol can do to someone's life. If you struggled with this in your life, I want you to know there is forgiveness, there is hope, not in some sort of generic higher power, but in the lordship of Jesus Christ. You can have victory in this in your life. Notice what Proverbs says in Proverbs 23 depicting The unfortunate woe of one who has made wine or their dearest friend. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In other words, don't fix your heart and mind on that. In the end, it bites like a serpent it stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things. Your heart after pervert, will utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. There's the life of someone who has tasted of that unfortunate life of making wine or mixed wine, meaning strong drink their closest friend. It's disarming. It leaves someone in this kind of lack of controlled state. Even as you notice here with Proverbs, it's not only just the drinking, it's the longing after it. Don't gaze at the wine while it's red and sparkling in the cup. In other words, you're tempting yourself. Don't put yourself in a place where you're going to have the the cause and the urge to do these things. No wonder, Peter says, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. What's the cure? What's the cure? From idolatry. From any sin. Here, here, Paul mentions being drunk with wine in the context of worship and Dionysius. But what is it? Think of what your sin is. What is the proclivity of your heart? What is the thing that that you thought you had conquered but it's one step up and two steps back? Could it be alcohol? Could it be wrestling with even something that's good for you like food but in excess it's caused you to have severe health problems? Is it gossiping? Is it lying? Is it the secret sins of a a damaged thought life? Is it sensuality? Think of it what John says, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, whatever it is, are you giving yourself over to those things rather than to be being filled with the Spirit, the spirit control life? This is what Paul is urging us to do. Walk in wisdom, walk with understanding. How do you have victory in your life? Be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. It's a call to obedience. It's not a call to say, Lord, I feel dry, fill me back up. I feel empty, fill me back up. No, on the contrary, it's saying, my life seems out of control. My life is not being lived in faithfulness to you. In thought, word, or deed, I'm falling, I'm struggling with an area. How do you have victory? Be being filled. Constant submission, constant repentance, constant time in God's Word. No wonder Peter says in First Peter 2.2, 2, he describes our love for the Word of God as a craving, epithemia, to have a strong delight and longing for and a love of the Word of God. This isn't just A verse a day keeps the devil away mentality. This is having an insatiable longing and craving for the things of the Lord as the deer pants for water. Oh Lord my soul pants for you. Is that your desire today? Is that your desire this morning? No matter how strong the desire for sin I want to say Lord you are my greater desire. You are the thing that now occupies my thoughts and my heart, my greatest affections, I want to be set upon you. So we're to walk wisely and redeem the time in wisdom with understanding, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. And then I love this, number four this morning, Paul says, what's the fruit of that? If you're in wisdom with understanding, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. What's the fruit of that? This might surprise you, but it's song. It's song. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 19. Oh, how wonderful this is. He says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. You might have said, wait, did Paul get that wrong? Doesn't he mean with your voice? Isn't he calling for great singing? No, he says, you want to make melody in your heart. Listen, you can have a nasally raspy voice like mine. I've had people through all of my singing ministry come up to me and they'll say, Steve, we're praying for you tonight. And I said, why is that? And they said, well it's obviously you're sick, you have a cold, you have a sore throat, is that why you sing the way you do? And I said, no, it's just how the Lord has blessed me with this raspy, nasally nasally voice. And they said, you're kidding. This is it. And I said, yes, this is it, but I want to use it to serve the Lord. Listen, you can have no voice and sing in 20 different keys during one phrase of melody. You can have a beautiful voice like a Steve Green or a Sandy Patty. It doesn't matter. We are to sing with one another, addressing one another, literally to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The Psalter, the Psalms. You heard David read them this morning. The hymns, the language of tradition. And that's why we sang this morning, Be Thou My Vision. We love these great hymns of faith, the language of tradition. And then spiritual songs, the songs of a new generation. We are to sing the Word of God. We are to sing great songs of tradition, great songs of truth, great songs of theology. We are to sing a new song, spiritual songs, to sing and make melody to the Lord with your heart he's the object we sing we minister we do church for an audience of one don't we we want him to be pleased in all things there's a parallel text to this in Colossians chapter 3 would you turn there with me we've seen this many times here in our fellowship but Colossians chapter 3 and in verse 16, you'll notice the parallel between the spirit-filled life and the word-filled life. It's the same. He says, let the word of Christ, that means the entirety of God's word in his gospel, dwell in you richly. Let it take permanent residence. I hide God's word in my heart so that I might not, what? Sin against you. There's why we do it. It's all for him. And he says we can teach and admonish. Listen, music can instruct. It can counsel. It can warn. It can bring encouragement. It can give a note of correction. He says teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. There it is. That's the life that we want to have. How should that be? You know, do you ever get a kick out of driving along somebody on the freeway or around town and they're completely oblivious to anything that's going on around them and they're pounding out a beat on the steering wheel and they're singing at the top of their lungs? If they have the window down, God forbid, most of the time, but if they have the window down, they're singing out of key, but they're singing to the glory of whatever and you can't stop them. That's how it ought to be for the Christian. A constant life of joy and singing and praise to the Lord in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Listen, in Acts 16, verse 25, Paul and Silas were in prison. And it said they were praying and they were singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. What a tremendous thing. Even in a, in a place of incarceration for living faithfully to the Lord and being arrested for the gospel, they were singing hymns and it was a sign of their witness and testimony in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can think of our brothers and sisters in Muslim nations today or in places where they're persecuted for, for, not, for knowing Jesus Christ, for sharing a Bible, for handing out a New Testament. And they're locked in prison. They're persecuted. They're tortured. But yet they're singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Why? Their joy is not based on circumstance or environment. Their joy is rooted in the nature and relationship of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we know we can walk wisely. We can make the most of every opportunity by being filled with the Spirit. And what's the sign we want to sing and speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in our heart for the Lord. This is given to us in wonderful song, in wonderful music. Number five this morning, not only in wisdom with understanding, being filled with the Spirit in song, But giving of thanks, giving of thanks. In verse 20, here Paul tells us very succinctly how we're to live. Listen, the Christian life is to be marked with a life of gratitude, a life of gratitude. We're to give thanks, Paul says, always, and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. We're to always give thanks. That's to be the habit of our life. We're to be thankful. We're to be grateful for who the Lord is and for all that He has done in our lives. This is such a great thing. All God's people have reason to be thankful and joyous, don't we? Let me ask you this morning we don't do this very often at all, but what are some of the reasons? that you're thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? Just in one or two word answers. Shout them out if you'd like to. Healing, love. What else? Forgiveness. Yes. What else? Guidance. Guidance. yes. You know, all these things. This is how we are to live in constant thankfulness before the Lord. In constant thankfulness before the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians 5 he says rejoice always and we are to give thanks to God constantly it's always to be the fruit of the lips of service that we have in Jesus this is how we're to spend our days now listen we go through trials we go through temptations we go through times of drudgery and times of sorrow times where we're brought to tears in our life this doesn't discredit those moments but listen through a broken heart, through the sorrow of tears, whatever it may be, we can live lives that are pleasing to the Lord, and we can give thanks. Paul says this to the church at Thessalonica. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks, I love this, in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ for you. There's another clue as to what God's will is. It's his will for you to be spirit-filled. It's his will for you to suffer righteously. It's his will for you to give thanks in all circumstances. We usually think of God's will as, I wonder who I'm going to marry. I wonder where my next job will be. Will I be this time next year in Palm City or has the Lord opened up a a group for my company? I may be moving to Orlando as we've had some move from our congregation this last year to go to medical school in different, different places or to be called overseas to missions. We don't know where the Lord will lead us but it's in every single circumstance we are to be thankful. Thankful. It's God's will for us. In fact, this should even mark our prayer life. In Philippians chapter 4, again a familiar set of verses, but verses 6 and 7, Paul tells us don't worry about anything. Boy, we need to hear that today, don't we? We live in a society and culture of worry. How do you sleep at night? How do you have victory in your life? Another thing on the news that's so disturbing and comes and another killing, another assassination, another group of people being beheaded by Islamic terrorists, another racial riot breaks out, another plant closing, whatever it may be. These are unusual times that we live in. And Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. A worried heart is an anxious heart. It's a nervous heart. It's given over to fear. And he says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving... Let your request be made known to God. You know what thanksgiving is here? It's remembering in prayer, Lord, I'm struggling. I'm in this trial. I'm under this load of persecution. I'm going through a terrible breakup in my family. I'm struggling with an unregenerate son or daughter. I don't know where my next penny is coming from. Whatever the anxious thought that is prodding your heart to fear. And he says, let your request be made known to God with thanksgiving, it means this, remembering how God has answered prayer in the past and you're recalling his faithfulness to you in the past and you're saying, Lord, I'm thankful for what you've done in the past. Do it again. I'm grateful to you. I want to commit these needs to you. I know you've heard my prayer in the past. I'm asking you to answer it again. And beloved, the Lord is faithful to you, isn't he? Great is thy faithfulness his mercies are renewed every morning are you here this morning under the load of trial under a load of despair your heart is worried your heart is anxious but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be made known to God you know what a thankful heart produces the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus he's got this You cast your care upon him because he cares for you. Roll your care on the Lord. Delight yourself in him and he will carry your burden, beloved. He'll do this for you, for all his children. We are to give thanks. We are to be a thankful people. To the church at Corinth, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.15 these familiar words. For it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Isn't that good? You want thanksgiving increased? Have a thankful heart? It's done for his glory. Not just done for answer prayer or done for your own benefit. It is done for the glory of God. And the writer of Hebrews, in that 13th chapter of Hebrews, verse 15, gives us another clue to being a thankful people. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. That's thanksgiving. That is thanksgiving. Are you hurting this morning? There's no greater joy than when you're in the crucible of grace to say, Lord, I'm at my wit's end. I'm going through unshakable trials. I've had health issues. I've had relational issues. I'm in the financial upheaval of my life Help meet these needs. I give you my son. I give you my daughter. I give you my husband. I give you my wife. Whatever the case may be. And he's wanting our hearts to be thankful to his glory, our lips to be a continual fruit of praise. Why? Because when we give those requests to him and we're desiring the things that he's desired of us, we can be thankful in delighting ourselves in him because we know that he will hear us and answer our prayers. A great life, isn't it? A thankful life. This is where we redeem the time, giving thanks to him. Lastly, this morning, in wisdom, with understanding, being filled with the Spirit, we are to then have a life of celebrating in song and giving thanks. And the last characteristic that is evidence of this is we're submissive one to another. Look at it with me here in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21. The apostle says, submitting to one another, notice the emphasis, out of reverence for Christ. This is worship. This is worship. We honor one another out of reverence for Jesus what's the inference if we're not if we're not showing subordination one to another we're not honoring Christ we're not reverencing his name he says do this no greater no greater book of the bible on this no greater chapter i believe than found in philippians chapter 2 we'll close with this this morning beloved philippians chapter 2 verses 1 to 4 what does it mean to be submissive what does it mean to prefer someone else, in other words? What does it mean to honor those? Not only in authority over us, but to honor each other. You're my brother. You're my sister in the Lord. What does it mean to do that in a very practical way? Here's how. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1-4, to four, If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Listen, you're in Christ... The Spirit of God dwells within you. You want to have encouragement, comfort, love, affection, and sympathy. Here's what you do. Complete my joy, Paul says, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. There's what it means to have great unity. That's what it means to submit to one another. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. There it is. Brother, I have $75 in my account, but a sister in Christ just came to me and she has a bill that needs to be paid for $55. What do I do? Pay it. Pay it. Prefer her. Prefer that need. Not, I only have 70. The Lord will help you. You never lose a dime on what you give away to the church or give away to someone else's need for the glory and reverence of Jesus Christ. Meet a need. Meet a need. I only have 70. Listen, you could be saying this morning, I only have 700. I only have 7,000. I only have 70,000. This is why when Paul tells us to give, we give of the first fruits. Our Lord, you bring the first fruits in. Why? Because we'll always stockpile for ourselves. Our hearts are selfish. He says, You're not just thinking of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, counting, look at it, others. More significant than yourself. Boy, this is, this is grace, isn't it? This doesn't come naturally. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, not wrong to take care of yourself, but also to the interests of others. What's our example? Have this mind among you, which is in Christ Jesus. You know, he wasn't selfish. He wasn't considering his own comfort. He left heaven's throne, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He is in eternal glory, and He came, and He put on flesh, and He dwelt among us, and He lived a sinless life, and He became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He submitted to wicked madmen like Caiaphas and Pilate, and Herod and others and even the jeerings of the crowds and the beating of the soldiers and the thrusting of the crown of thorns into his skull and the beating of the the cat of nine tails of the scorpion's hook at the end and the nails at the cross and the stabbing of the spear in his side and he considered the joy set before him more than the shame. Why? For our redemption. We're to have that mind. Selflessness. It's a lost characteristic today. In the world, we're taught to think only of ourselves, to to do all we can just to further ourselves, and maybe with the crumbs that's left, the Lazaruses of this world will somehow feast upon, no, my brothers, no, my sisters. We are to look after the other's interests, not just our own, not selfish ambition, but humility, counting others more significant. Listen, your well being should be more thought of than mine. Your helpfulness in your job, your security financially should be more than my own. Your joy in the Lord, your developing of your spiritual gifts should be more than my own. That's how we are to live as the body of Christ. It's always all spiritual gifts are for the one another, the one another's by grace, not for self edification. Jesus lived that life for us. And what's the end result? God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory and praise of God the Father. There's the life. Oh, my brothers and sisters, may we walk wisely this week. May we purchase back the moments. May we redeem the time in wisdom, with understanding, being filled with the Spirit, a life of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in our hearts to God. And may it be evidenced, may a non-believing world look upon our church here at the Cross Church and say, look at how those Christians, how they love one another, how they prefer one another, how they care for one another, how they serve one another, how they forgive one another. That's how we're to live. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what a great hope, great transformation there is in Jesus. We're to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, soul, mind, and strength. But then we're to love our neighbor as ourself. Lord, this isn't just a magnet for the refrigerator. This is an acute saying we put on bumper stickers. This is the heart and the soul of our faith. Love you, honor you, please you, serve you, worship you, praise you, adore you, glorify you. But then we're to consider others more important than ourselves. We're even to love our enemies. This is a love of another kind. Oh Lord, produce in us this week obedience. May we be filled with the Spirit. May our lives erupt in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs giving praise to you. Even in jail, as Paul and Silas, if any of us are ever incarcerated for knowing Jesus, may we sing to your glory, your sovereign. O oh Lord, may we walk worthy. May we be a thankful people. Lord, may we be Applying your truth and wisdom with a mind of understanding, knowing your will, what it is for us. For our lives are a vapor, a puff of smoke. They come and go so quickly. And so, Lord, we would ask even this morning that you would eclipse every thought from us, everything from our lives, except for knowing Christ. It begins and ends with you. Our view of you determines everything. How we live is how we see you, how we view you. So we say with the hymn writer here this morning, Lord, be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. I thank you, Lord, for our church. I thank you for these dear people. I thank you for the work and the gifts and the talents you've given each this morning. Thank you, Lord, that it's that work to the ends of the earth that we want to go into the world this week and to do your work. Use us for your glory. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray and all God's saved people said, Amen. Amen.